take your Bible and turn to Psalm 7. How long has it been since you heard a good old sermon about the wrath of God? We don't hear much about that, do we? In fact, everything we hear and think about is about the love of God, and that certainly is amazing, and it's something that we don't deserve. But if we were to think about the other part that we don't talk about much, the wrath, the anger of God, if we don't do that, then we don't fully appreciate His love. Can I say that again? If we don't understand His anger and wrath, we don't fully appreciate His love. In fact, I'm convinced that a lot of people that just live in the world with what little they know about God, they've heard that Jesus loves me, they've heard that God is love. In fact, uh, just about anybody, anywhere, if you were to talk to them about what Christianity is, they will say something like, well, it's loving your neighbor, it's being tolerant and being kind and all of those type of things is what they think that Christianity really is. Well, they don't understand that uh, God, a loving God, is also a righteous God. He's also a just God. And the Bible also speaks about His anger and about His wrath. And this is why a lot of people think that the Old Testament is just irrelevant because some of them think that the Old Testament God is a different God than the God of the New Testament. Some people will say, well, I reject the God that is in the Old Testament. I just simply follow Jesus, which shows their lack of understanding of who Jesus is. Some people say, well, when I read the Bible, I don't really read all of it. I only look for the words that are written in red. Have you ever heard that? Just the words of Jesus because Jesus was love and compassion and tolerance for everybody. And there are some things that in the story of Christ they don't really pay attention to. Think about the words that Jesus had to say toward the Pharisees. They weren't always kind, loving, and tolerant words, were they? Think about when Jesus went into the temple and he saw the men that were selling the sacrifices and exchanging the money and doing it, of course, at a profit because whatever sacrifice you brought as you traveled to Jerusalem would never be accepted. Oh, but we happen to have some here and uh, they're at a really good price and they were much more expensive than what you had. And then if you tried to pay in Gentile money, they said, oh, we can't accept that in the temple, but we will exchange it. And they had a low rate of exchange so that it costs the people a lot to get their money made, uh, put into shekels, right? What did Jesus have to say about that? And how did he act about that? Loving, tolerant, and kind. Everybody's got to make a buck and all of that. No, he was angry and he turned the tables over, drove the men out and said, my father's house is a house of prayer for the nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Think about even Jesus in this situation. So we're talking about the forgotten side of God. And when we sing the song and say on that, for on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. What do we mean by the wrath of God? Is God really an angry God? Well, Psalm 7 
answers that question. Verse 6, David writes, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Have you ever prayed for the anger and the wrath of God to be expressed? It almost doesn't sound Christian, does it? And yet this is what David did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up or stand up or rise up, in other words. And do it because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the peoples shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. That's an interesting statement there. And according to my integrity within me. Now, I read those and uh, I have a few questions. Arise in your anger. Why would I and why would David or why would you ever call upon the Lord to express his anger? Why would we ever want to do that? I want mercy. I want grace. I want kindness. I want compassion. And I want other people to experience that. And yet David is calling upon the anger side of the Lord. That, that got my attention. And then also reading through there, it uh, talks about David actually asks for the judgment of God. Now, why would he do that? And he says, judge me in my righteousness. Well, that bothered me too because the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. Why would David call upon the Lord to judge him in his righteousness? Isn't that kind of playing with fire? The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. David, what are you thinking and what is it that you're doing here in this situation? And then there's another part in there where he talks about the Lord's anger and then he talks about his enemies and their rage. And it almost sounds like he's saying, Lord, this is more than I can handle. I need you to step up and to feel everything I'm feeling and to deal with it accordingly. In other words, David was calling upon God, uh, to use our expression, to fight fire with fire. I can't handle this. They've outgunned me. Come on, Lord, and bring the big artillery with you when you do this. I need you to... Fight this battle for me. Strange thing. Far from the lovey-dovey, ooey-gooey, squishy kind of things that we think about when we think about God. This is calling upon a militant God to handle the situation and to handle it forcefully. Now isn't it interesting that whenever we evangelize, we usually don't start off with... There's a God, He created you, He is holy, He is all-powerful, and because of your sin, you are out of sorts with Him, and He is out of sorts with you, and it's very dangerous. Usually you hear people say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And you know what a lot of people say to that? Well, that's nice, but not interested. Because when God is seen and approached like that, 
The love of God is no big deal. After all, doesn't he love everybody? Why should I be so anxious to be loved by God? He already loves me. And I'm okay the way that I am. And that they don't understand, no, they are not okay. And the God that we serve is more than just a kind-hearted, grandfatherly old God. He is a God that is very wrathful. And he is a God whose wrath is actively expressed. So let's talk about that. Why is it, another question that came to my mind, why does God tell me to be angry and sin not and to put away anger and yet David is calling upon him to be angry? How come he can be angry and I can't? How come he can do it and I'm told not to do that type of thing? So uh, let's talk about it. Verse 1, or point 1 says, The Lord has righteous and just anger. Righteous and just. Now, I don't know if I've ever really had anything I could identify as righteous anger. Maybe I have. But at the same time, maybe I haven't. Maybe that's just something that we say because the scripture says be angry and sin not. And the only way I can have anger and not sin is I've got to have righteous anger. The kind of anger that God has. The kind of anger that Jesus had when he drove out the money changers. Have I ever really had that? That's a tough one. Have you ever had that? That's a tough one because we walk such a fine line on all of that. Was I really angry about the glory of God? Was I really angry about the right things and righteous things and just things? Or was I mad because I was offended, because I was hurt? Even when it comes to uh, sometimes when we have theological discussions, we get angry sometimes. And when we get angry, the question is, Am I really angry about the right things or am I angry because somebody doesn't see things my way? Am I angry because they're not as smart as I am? Am I angry because they just don't get it and, and it's really just ticking me off that this isn't happening? I don't think that qualifies as righteous anger. I think we get far too personal and too wrapped up in things and then we try to cover it and we try to sugarcoat it with I'm angry for the truth. I'm angry for the... There's a time for anger, it says in Ecclesiastes, and I'm taking up my time. I'm not sure that uh, that ever really happens. And if it does, then I would just simply say it's extremely rare. And usually, even if we may start off with that, we, by the time we get through with it, we've kind of messed it all up, haven't we? The Lord in his anger, is different than us because his anger is righteous and it is always just. One of the things that gets quoted sometimes out of uh, context and out of understanding is the phrase that's in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a what? Tooth for tooth. Now that sounds like retaliation at first glance, doesn't it? That sounds like if you hit me, I'm going to hit you back, and I'm going to match it. And, uh, you know, and, and if you poke out my eye, I poke out yours. If you knock out one of my teeth, I knock out one of yours. Well, that's not really the best way to understand that. What that phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, means actually is the punishment should always fit the crime. 
In other words, if somebody steals a pencil off of your desk, we don't do the death penalty for that. We don't call for execution for that. Why? It's a pencil. Now, they should pay it back, and maybe they should pay you back if we're going to be biblical four times, you know, what they stole, and uh, that would... That would be a good thing to do. In fact, I've often thought sometimes we take people that do nonviolent crimes, maybe they embezzle money, and say they embezzle $20,000 from their employer. They're arrested, they're put in jail, and say they're going to be in jail for five years. And uh, what happens? Well, they are in jail at taxpayer expense. And now for this person that's in that jail, you and I are paying for it. And while they are in jail, they may actually get more hardened and more bitter. They may learn from somebody more experienced how to do it and get away with it next time. And all that time, their employer is out that $20,000. I wonder if we did things more the biblical way, we would probably execute a whole lot more criminals because the Bible calls for that uh, much more than we actually do it. And then it also calls for a thief to restore fourfold what they have taken. What if that person who is nonviolent, that person who hadn't hurt anybody but he embezzled that money, what if he had to pay it back and now the employer gets $80,000 and uh, this person is also making a living while he's doing that so that the taxpayer doesn't have to pay for him while he's in jail and maybe he actually learns through doing that that was a stupid thing to do I'll never do that again in fact I think as we read the Bible we'll find that God has a better way of dealing with things and uh, with people than we would ever understand but what our society has done is we act as though we're just far too compassionate to execute people and to execute very many people and to only do it after 15 or 20 years and in rare cases, kind of the way we are right now. And we would never think of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In fact, we would think about what Jesus said when he said that we are to actually not retaliate or not match force, but we are to turn the other cheek. Does that all seem kind of funny? Someone said the other day, how can you be anti-abortion and pro-death penalty? And they were very smug as they uh, said that. I watched it on YouTube. How can you call yourself a Christian, this lady said to a, a man there, and, and be anti-abortion and pro-death penalty when the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. Isn't that good? And this person answered back, and it was a brilliant answer. He said, because the murderer is only executed when they are found guilty, and the child that is being ripped out of its mother's womb is completely innocent on those things. And we don't believe in killing the innocent, right? And so they think they've got us. And they think that they've got you figured out and they've got God figured out. And they think that eye for eye and tooth for a tooth sounds just so barbaric. Oh, we would never, we are such an evolved society, we would never do anything like that. And I just want to ask you a question. How gentle and kind and merciful is our society really? When you look at it worldwide... You've got dictators that don't hesitate to imprison and to kill people. 
You've got people that will fight war, wars at the drop of a hat. You've got terrorists that will blow up anything and uh, everything that they can, and they don't care how many people they kill. In fact, the more the better. Well, we're certainly not like that until you go and spend the weekend in Chicago in the inner city and come back and talk to me again. Be one of those people that are up the subway in New York City. This crime is up like 60% right now where somebody comes up and just pushes them off in the path of an oncoming train. Tell me that we are just this gentle and loving and merciful society. I would say I don't think we really are. When you think about the crimes that are committed, when you think about the things that people are put through, and you think about all of that that goes on, and yet we have the audacity to look at God in His Word and in the Old Testament and say, well, He's mean and He's angry and that can't possibly be the God of the New Testament. That doesn't make any sense. Other people have said, well, the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. Okay, I'm with you there. And they said, but he's grown and he has matured. And he is a much kinder and nicer person in the New Testament than he was in the Old. That doesn't make any sense. He's the God who doesn't change. You see, what this world doesn't understand is that God, every time he looks at a situation every time he judges a situation or a person every time he acts every time he allows anything to happen it is always done with perfect righteousness and justice i want you to think about the fact that god can do that and you can't and that's why he tells you keep your hands off of it that's why yes it does say in the bible judge not that you be not judged and uh, whatever measure you use is coming back after you. That's why you better use the Bible, not your feelings or society's uh, thoughts or anything like that. Better use the Word of God. And um, why does God get to do that and we don't? Because He is righteous and He is holy. And what do we mean by that? Psalm 711 tells us this. Let's put this on the church sign sometime. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Do you find that offensive? That's the word of God. Angry with the wicked every day. All of those people, all of those people you walk by, and you uh, maybe you care about them, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't give them a second thought. Maybe you witness to them. Maybe you feel guilty because you didn't, but... Here's the truth about all of that is God is angry with the wicked every day. And think about it. He has every right to be angry with our nation, with the culture in which we live, and with every person that breaks, that violates his law, especially those who do it willingly and blasphemously. You heard anybody use his name in vain lately? You heard anybody use his name as a curse word? And uh, think about it. Does God have a right to be angry? Yes, he does. And the difference between my anger and God's anger, your anger and God's anger, is most of the time my anger and your anger is kind of uh, half-baked, let's say. What do I mean by that? Well, think about this. 
God anger, God's anger is always just and righteous because it is never out of order. It's never too extreme. It's never just flying off the handle. He is never out of control. He never loses his mind and all of that. Have you ever heard of a crime of passion, they call it? And somebody kills somebody else. And then they say later on, I never intended for that to happen, but I got so angry I couldn't control myself. Okay, that's humans. That's what we do. We say things that we say, I didn't mean that. Yeah, yeah, we probably did, but it's too late to take it back. We do things. We say, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to be that vindictive. I was just kind of out of control on all of that. See, here's the deal. God never does that. The punishment always fits the crime. Here's another thing where God's anger is different than our anger. Have you ever gotten angry with someone and it seemed perfectly justified in your mind until you found out the rest of the story? You ever done that? That's a terrible feeling. Where you have to go back to somebody and say, man, I am so sorry. I, I didn't know the background. I didn't know what all was said. I didn't know what all happened there. I didn't know. And of course, we don't know anybody's mind. We think we do, but we don't. And we think we know their heart. We think we know their motive, but we don't really know that. Somebody uh, said to me one time sitting in my office, well, I'm 99% sure. And I said, okay, so then you're wrong. You don't really know, do you? And they looked at me and I said, well, 1% is a pretty big thing there if you're going to act on this. And uh, that's the way we all are. Well, I know I'm pretty sure that's what they were thinking or that's what they meant or something. And then we find out later on we were dead wrong on all of that. Do you know God never has to do that? God never has a fact that he uncovers. God never gets more information and then has to reassess what he does or what he thinks because he is not only all-powerful, not only all-present, but he is an all-knowing God. He knows the thoughts and the intents of the heart and he acts accordingly and so he responds righteously every single time. Unlike earthly judges and unlike you and me, he always knows what he is doing. He doesn't have to rely on a jury. He doesn't have to rely on evidence. He never has an undiscovered truth or anything. He knows all of it. Now here's the good news. With a God who knows every single thing about you and about me. Now we can pretend to be righteous and we can pretend to be better than everyone else. But God actually knows and sometimes we look at other people and we point fingers at them and we talk about them and we just can't believe what they did and how they did it and all of that well what if God exposed your heart to us tonight with everything he knows about you for your entire life all of the hidden things all of the things we kind of lie about oh no that didn't bother me and yet it did, and we're bothered on the inside. Or, oh, well, I don't remember that. I didn't even notice that. And yet we could talk about it at the drop of a hat. God could expose all of that if he wanted to. But here's some good news for you. Psalm 145.8 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful. And look at this. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast 
love. Can anybody say amen to that? Because if it weren't for that, I wouldn't have lived long enough to get saved, and neither would you. First time you sinned, that would be it, and you wouldn't deserve it, and he would be righteous and just. Except that he's slow to anger. You know, we say when we read the book of Jonah, isn't it great that God is a God of a second chance? Brother, I burned my second chance years ago. I don't even know what number I would be on right now or what number you would be on. I'm not sure we could calculate it. I'm not sure we could even pronounce it. It's probably a number we've never heard of, right? Slow to anger. Slow to anger. I'm so glad he is because there are those times when I've had the same question you do. How does God allow that to go on? Here's the answer. Because he's slow to anger. Why doesn't God judge the wicked faster? Because he is slow to anger. And isn't it interesting that when we look around at the world and we look around at people that wrong us, we want the justice of God to come down and we want it to be quick and we want it to be powerful. We just don't want that to happen with us, do we? Justice for you, mercy for me. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That sounds loving, doesn't it? And so God is doing all of this, saying, I want you to follow my model. My anger is always righteous and just. And you can express that when your anger is righteous and just. Now, that'll make me pause. That'll make me swallow really hard because I have a tendency to fly off the handle and uh, to say that it is righteous and just like the Lord's, mm, not so much. Now, I think in some ways, maybe as time has gone by, I'm a little, mm, I couldn't say slow to anger. Maybe I'm just slower to anger. Is that fair? That's progress. I don't get near as mad in traffic as I used to. You know, those type of things. Slower to anger. But I still haven't reached where God is. I'm not that person who is slow to anger. I'm not gracious and merciful. And I don't really abound in steadfast love. My love is off and on, up and down. But God's is ever constant, ever sure. And he is slow to anger. Praise the Lord for that. Or again, we wouldn't be here. Okay? That's enough on number one. Let's go to number two. The Lord defends his children. He says, David says, lift yourself up. Some translations say, stand up, rise up. Okay? Think about that. Rise up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have. Uh, you have commanded. Uh, Lord, it's almost like David is saying, get up and do something. I'm, I'm surrounded here, and they're after me. Oh, Lord, I'm begging you, do something. And can't you picture somebody powerful and important observing something, and all of a the sudden they stand up and the room gets quiet? Okay. Can you picture something like that? Well, that's a, a way where David is kind of 
using an anthropomorphism about God. He's giving God a human quality. It's as if God is the judge who is standing up and everybody has to get quiet and everybody has to wait and everybody is waiting for him to render a verdict. And so when David says that, he's kind of uh, picturing here, I need you, Lord, to defend me. It makes me think of 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins and not our, for ours only, but also for the whole world. You know what that saying? We have an advocate. We have a lawyer. We have an attorney. We have a representative. We have a spokesman that stands up for us in heaven whenever we sin. And we're so thankful for that. And that's what David is pleading for. I'm being unmercifully pummeled in the press, in the world stage and in gossip in other palaces i'm just being clobbered in all of this oh lord i wish you would just rise up and you render your verdict about me and you know that's what the lord jesus does every time we sin the bible says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren and i'm a brethren and he is before the throne night and day that's his full-time job, accusing you and accusing me every time we sin, that we deserve hell, that God should punish us, that if God is going to be just, he should remove any sort of favor from us and he should let his full wrath be felt. Okay? Here's what Jesus does. He stands to our defense, like David was praying for here, and he judges us on the basis of righteousness. Now here's the good news. He doesn't judge me on the basis of my righteousness because I don't have any. He judges me on the basis of his righteousness because the Bible says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us that we might have his righteousness. So tonight you've got the righteousness of God. And when Jesus pleads your cause, he pleads the cause on the basis of his death, burial, and resurrection after his perfect life so that you have perfect righteousness and the Lord Jesus can say, my blood has cleansed him or her from all of their sin. This is not a court case. This is a family matter and he rises to our defense. And so that's what he is uh, calling for here. In the ESV study Bible, there's an interesting note. It said, in the Psalms, judging is more often than not a saving action. Ever thought of it like that? A saving action. It's God intervening on behalf of the innocent and oppressed. And he puts in parentheses, the English... The word In English, the word judge tends to focus more on condemning rather than on rescuing. And so the particular deliverance then is part of God's larger project of putting the whole world back into its right order. So Adam fell. The whole world is plunged into sin. We are born as sinners. We are alienated from God. And what is God doing in his judgment of the situation and judgment of all of us? He's rescuing us. Because God didn't just send Jesus to go, oh, wouldn't it be nice? 
This will be like giving them a Hallmark card. This will like, be like giving them a, a basket, you know, of, of fruit or something like that. Let me just show them how much I love them. No, 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 you've got to back up. God was offended by our sin. Our sin alienated us from God, and humanity is born as an enemy of God. And it's because God rightly judged that and judged our sin that he also went, and I have the perfect remedy. I will send God the Son to earth to live a perfect life and die on a cross so I can pour my wrath on him, and he will take the death penalty from them upon himself, and then he will give them his righteousness, and he'll rise from the dead and conquer death, hell, and the grave. And all of that came out of God's love. Well, of course it did. But it also came out of his judgment. It was because of his judgment upon us that the need for a Savior came, and God loved us enough to send the Savior. You see what that, that means? And that makes verses in the Psalms especially make a whole lot more sense. God is not walking around and looking around saying, who can I condemn? How can I condemn? Ah, there's one. Wham. You know why? John 3, 17. Those who don't believe are condemned when? Already. So God's not looking around to condemn anybody when he's judging. That's already been done. That is a given. There is none righteous, no, not one. They're already condemned. You know what the judgment of God does? He looks down and he sees it. You know, the old song said, He looked beyond my fault and saw my need. Nope. He looked right at my fault and met my need. Because I was dead. I was helpless, I was hopeless, and I was on my way to a devil's hell where I would experience the wrath of God forever. And because God looked at that, because God saw that, he knew exactly what to do. I went in almost a year ago, be a year tomorrow, right? The third. And had my heart opened up and had a doctor take out my heart, stop my heart, and fix it and then put it back in and restart it. That amazes me. Okay? Now, you know what I'm glad of? A doctor had no personality. I went to go see the surgeon, and I really, by that point, I was doing better. I was a little stronger and, you know, all of that. And uh, my cardiologist wanted me to see him anyway. And he comes in, and the first thing he says as he walks in the room is, well, I looked at your echocardiogram, and I don't like what I see. You're going to have to have open-heart surgery, and uh, here are your choices on your valves. And he showed me three valves. I don't recommend that one or that one. I think you ought to do that one, and uh, we'll get it done. That guy over there will schedule you. And by the way, you've only got about a 1% chance of dying. And then he left the room. He's a nice guy. And if it weren't for his PA, I'm, you know, I might have been more offended, but she was very nice. And uh, he, he just was like that. I told Sammy after it was over, I said, just be prepared. He's probably going to come up to you and say, we're done. He died and then walk off. <laughs> and uh, I said that to my cardiologist and he doubled over laughing. He goes, yeah, that's him. He goes, hey, listen, he's your mechanic. You don't have to be friends with your mechanic. He just opens a hood and fixes it. He goes, I'll be your friend. Okay, you got it. And that's just kind of the way he was and the kind of the way things were. But you know what I found out? He was right. And he made a judgment 
And as severe as that seemed to be, and as hard as that seemed to be, and with all the things that it put me through, you know something? He was right. He was right. And that valve did need to be fixed, and I'm better a year later now because of that. Praise the Lord for that. And so he made a judgment. He saw a fault and then met the need. See, we would like to know, oh, you can't judge me. Okay, then just let your heart fail and die. Right? But he made a judgment that that heart is weak and that valve is leaking and you've got aortic insufficiency, they call it. And that blood, instead of going out of the heart to where my fingers and toes and all of that that needed it, it was coming back into the heart and we were going to have a whole lot more trouble if we didn't get that fixed. Okay? And so they did, and it's working today. So we pray that it keeps on working, right? And uh, that was because of a good judgment. You know, we talk about that sometimes when we tell our kids, use some good judgment. What are we saying on that? Walk around and condemn everybody, but be nice when you do it? No, 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 no. It means to appraise. It means to discern. It means to come to a proper knowledge about things. And that's what God did. And that's what David is calling for. Assess me and my situation because I know you will always do it righteously. And so David is reminding us here, God defends his children. And the New Testament answers the question, why would he defend us? He does that not based on our performance. He judges us and defends us on the basis of what Christ did because we have his righteousness. And so it's an amazing thing to think about that. Number three, the Lord vindicates his children. Now, what David is calling for, I've been talked about and I've been maligned and all of that. Oh, Lord, I want you to stand up and look at verse 7. So the congregation of the peoples shall surround you for their sakes, therefore, return on high. In other words, what he is saying, this all ties in with the judgment that he's doing. David is actually saying, and when you vindicate me, do it in front of people so that they know. I got a feeling David was not only concerned about what his enemies thought, but even worse, he's wondering what his friends think now. Could there be something to that? Have you ever had somebody that you were perfectly fine with and then somebody told you something about him and you go, oh boy, if that's true, they're not what I think they are. And just that little bit of doubt can be disastrous to a king, can't it? You don't know who's going to try to depose you or assassinate you or lead a rebellion against you. David was no stranger to any of those things, was he? And David is saying to the Lord, I know that I'm right before you, but they don't know that. I know that, you know that, but they don't know that. So do it publicly and vindicate me for the sake of my testimony because they all knew David, well... Maybe if what they've heard from David's enemies, they know David maybe as a hypocrite, they know him as a failure, they know him as a fraud, they know him as that type of thing. And David certainly did have his issues. But David is calling upon the Lord now, stand up for me 
And don't just do it in my heart. Don't just do it between you and me. Make it known so that everyone knows that these things are lies. He wasn't saying I'm perfect as we talked about last week. But he is saying in this situation I am innocent. And uh, this is something public and open to show that what we believe and what we know are actually true and this is the way that we live that's a nice thing restore my credibility restore my testimony restore my trustworthiness is what he was saying and then number four the Lord rescues his children we've been talking about that the Lord shall judge the peoples who are the peoples all of the other nations David is saying here, the Lord's not only going to judge Israel, but He's going to judge all of those people that want to destroy Israel, all of those people who want to destroy David. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judgment's universal. Everybody is going to stand before the Lord, right? And then He said, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me integrity within me means my heart is right well where does he get the righteousness if none are righteous well I would call your attention to uh, Isaiah chapter 53 because the Lord this is real clear is going to judge us perfectly and if there's no one who has this righteous judgment where did David get this boldness and this confidence well, Isaiah 53, verse 5. This will bless you. And this will be where we kind of end tonight. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace, peace with God, was upon him. And by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Boy, that's an understatement, isn't it? And we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. Isn't that good? That's why David had righteousness. It was given to him when he put his faith and trust in the Lord and knew that he needed righteousness that came from outside of himself. And that's what we plead for the world to understand. You may be a nice person. People may think well of you. But you need a righteousness that surpasses all of that. And you can't get it. You can't work it up. It's got to be given to you. Theologians call it alien righteousness we have a righteousness that is not our own it's the righteousness of Christ and verse 10 said yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him quit blaming the Jews for the crucifixion quit blaming the Romans for it this was God's will Christ died for the glory of God and it pleased the Lord to bruise him and he has put him to grief And then it says something very interesting. When you make his soul an offering for sin. God is going to require an offering for sin. And God is going to be the offering for sin. 
When Abraham had Isaac up on Mount Moriah getting ready to offer him, you remember Isaac had asked him a question. We have the fire, we have the wood, where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. You know what he was saying? God will one day be the sacrifice for our sin. That's where David got his righteousness. So the conclusion is just verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. Boy, wouldn't that be great if that happened today? It's going to happen. Oh, that today might be the day. We sang tonight, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That You, My King, Would Die For Me? Isn't that beautiful? That song always reminds me of Charles Wesley's song, And Can It Be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Is God an angry God? Yes. Is he a wrathful God? Yes. And you ought to praise him for it. All the time because it was his anger that saw your sin that caused him to also in love send the sacrifice that would take you out of that sin, give you redemption, and give you the righteousness of God. No wonder David called upon the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God, the judgment of God that caused him to send the one who would rescue us from our sin and from an eternal hell to be with him forever in heaven and to have a relationship with him through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, feel kind of funny sometimes when we talk about this. But thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. But also thank you for reminding us tonight if you weren't offended and if you weren't angry and if you didn't judge sin, we wouldn't need any of those things. But because of that, you not only condemned us, convicted us, but then you sent your son to be the payment for our sin. And we cannot thank you enough. We praise you for your wrath. And we praise you even more that you put your wrath on Christ instead of on us. And when we surrendered to the Lordship of Christ and trusted in his death on the cross as the full payment for our sin, the wrath of God was satisfied on Jesus who bore that wrath in our place, the innocent for the guilty, God himself being the lamb slain for our sin. Thank you, Lord, for that reminder. And let us be reminded as we look in this, at this world, this world is passing away. It is under the condemnation, the curse of God, the wrath of God. And there's only one way out, and that is the Lord Jesus. May we see other people the way you do, and may we also share the good news of redemption with them. Fire us up, strengthen us, and cause us to love you even more because we understand just a little bit more about your wonderful, 
love, and salvation toward us. And it's in Jesus' name that we praise you, and we thank you, and we say together, Amen and Amen. Okay?